Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family as we continue our study in the Old Testament book of Sirach, Practical Wisdom for Living in the Modern World. And today we're going to be looking at the wisdom of humility. Sirach is a book filled with wisdom, and today we want to look how wisdom can apply to the attitudes we have towards different areas of life. Now, you're thinking I'm going to talk just about you, but no, I'm going to broaden the topic of humility to some areas we don't hear a whole lot about, but I think is actually critical. And to start with, I believe it's critical for our nation's survival. What? Never heard anything like that. Well, let's go to the book of Sirach, chapter 10, starting with verse 8 and really this whole section of Sirach chapter 10 talks about humility for the nations. Sovereignty passes from nation to nation on account of injustice and insolence and wealth. In other words, pride. Sirach chapter 10, now verse 14. The Lord has cast down the thrones of rulers and has seated the lowly in their place. The Lord has plucked up the roots of nations and planted the humble in their place. The Lord has overthrown the lands of nations and has destroyed them to the foundations of the earth. In other words, wiped them clean. He has removed some of them and destroyed them and extinguished the memory of them from the earth. This is pretty tough stuff. And basically, it's saying God allows great nations, but when they get proud and human pride and even nation's pride or an empire's pride, basically it's exalting itself in the place of God. And that's pride instead of humility and God's going to totally, completely, and utterly remove them from history. And he says that sovereignty therefore passes from nation to nation. And in reality, one of the reasons that empires and nations do not last, and you can't say the United States of America is excluded from this, it isn't, is that when a nation lifts itself up, in pride and forgets the God who gave it sovereignty, it's in extreme danger. There's a section, I'm going to look at a couple other scriptures here to kind of get a, uh, a kaleidoscope view of this whole idea of national humility. In Ezekiel chapter 17, the prophet Ezekiel, by the way, was going after in the strongest possible way, more than anyone else I'm aware of in the entire Bible, the people of Israel. And it wasn't that he hated them, he didn't, but they were thinking that because they had been so specially blessed and chosen by God, that they were immune from having a judgment of God. 
because they were so special. And Ezekiel kept saying, no, 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 you don't get this. Now, the context of this, that the people Ezekiel was preaching to had already been defeated at home and deported. And these were exiles in a foreign land, and they still didn't believe they were under the judgment of God for straying from God's ways. And they thought, oh, there's going to be immediate restoration. God's going to turn us all around. We'll have a few months of bad stuff. But it'll... And Ezekiel kept saying, no, no, no. And I, in fact, I've been reading and studying a particular commentary on the book of Ezekiel by a, a scholar by the name of Christopher Wright. And it's so striking to me, the condition of our church and the condition of our nation, thinking that we can do anything and God's going to automatically bless us because we're the blessed people. No, the blessed people have to remain faithful. But in any case, summarizing, Ezekiel says in chapter 17 and verse 24, and all the trees of the field will know that I, the Lord, bring low the high tree and make the high the low tree. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Now, what is he talking about? Horticulture here? No. The trees, the great trees, are figures of great empires, great empires. And again, I want to bring this home because the United States today, uh, since World War II, since the fall of the Soviet Union, we are the world's last superpower. So we fit in this category of the high tree. But if the high tree exalts itself in pride, forgets its humility and blessings from God, and therefore obeying God and just goes its own way, thinking they'll automatically be blessed because they have been blessed, he says, I will bring low the high tree. Okay, bring it low, and he will exalt the low tree, the humble ones. Does this ring any bells to you who are Catholics? Well, anybody, Protestants too, but as Catholics, we should be very familiar with Luke chapter 1 and 52, where Mary says he has put down the mighty from their thrones. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. This is exactly what Ezekiel was saying. This is exactly what Sirach is saying. Sirach again, 10 and verse 14, the Lord has cast down the thrones of rulers and seated the lowly in their place. Let me give you the history of the United States of America from its founding until today, okay? And (laughs) that's a little bit of a nervous laugh. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, for the Lord your God, and he's talking to ancient Israel, but man, I see parallels to the United States of America, a blessed land. The Lord is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks of waters and fountains and springs and flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, 
in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. This is one of the reasons I like Thanksgiving. It's just good, not just one day a year, but all year long and every year to thank God and the blessings of any form of American exceptionalism are gifts that there should be a return of a loving obedience to God and thanksgiving to him. But when you're eaten and when you're full, it says in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 8, take heed. Take heed lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, which I command you this day lest when you have eaten and are full and built goodly houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. And, you know, I'm talking as one who grew up in post-World War II America. We had greater wealth than any nation in the history of the world of any nation in the world today. It's just unprecedented. We've been blessed way beyond measure. And says, you be, take heed at that point that your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. The heart being lifted up is pride. And that's the opposite of humility. And so when you may have never heard somebody get on the radio and talk about national humility. It is essential for our continued existence. God says further in Deuteronomy 8, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you this day that you shall surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. National humility. And we started with Sirach chapter 10. It's essential. We have been blessed in the United States of America, just like ancient Israel was blessed. But that's not some automatic uh, insurance policy against national judgment from God himself if we forget the God who gave us these blessings. All right, let's go to a second area, and that is the humility for leaders, leaders' humility. We started with national humility. Now we're moving to leader's humility. And here we are, Sirach chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Very simple, very profound. The greater you are, the more you must humble yourself, so you will find favor in the sight of the Lord. For great is the might of the Lord. He has glorified by the humble. Now, it's very difficult to talk about church leaders because there's quite a, a spectrum of 
church leaders. But one of the things I read recently, and I read a lot of books, I actually, I looked it up. I couldn't quite find it. I can kind of see the page in my mind. It was on the left-hand page of a thick book, but I don't remember which book. But in any case, it was a a book on church history. It said, after the fall of the Roman Empire, there is a question what's the model now for church leaders? Because the civil government as such, uh, Roman Empire, is gone. Uh, The only institutions left standing was the Catholic Church. And so what was the model for leaders? Was it to be the monks uh, living in kind of a humble existence in monasteries or the model of Roman princes? And to a significant degree, at least here in the West, it took on the notion of Roman princes. I think it has actually hurt the church, particularly, I'm just, I can speak for Germany, a very, very, very wealthy church, and the church in the United States, another very, very wealthy church. Um, the Vatican fired what they called the Bling Bishop in Germany because he went and spent $43 million to remodel his opulent home. $43 million. What is he thinking? Uh, our current uh, cardinal of Washington, D.C., when he was the Archbishop of Atlanta, uh, was building a $2.2 million, 6,000-square-foot retirement home for himself until the good folks in Atlanta were outraged, and he sold it. Um, CNN did a report on 10 of the country's top Catholic leaders living in palatial residences more than a million dollars. And, of course, what's the biggest scandal recently is ex-Cardinal McCarrick. He lived in palatial style with Mercedes limousines and drivers and gourmet cooks and all that. I don't think it helped people. I really don't. A wise woman a few years ago made a comment, and she said to me that the higher the church leaders go, you know, from priest to monsignor to bishop to archbishop to cardinal, that the higher they go, the humbler the lifestyle they should engage in. And not because if it's any kind of forced requirement or anything, it's basically just in wisdom to keep the heart from getting puffed up. And little did I realize that this counsel from a wise woman, I thought it was a good insight, is straight out of the book of Sirach. Again, chapter 3 and verse 18. The greater you are, the more you must humble yourself, so you will find favor in the sight of the Lord. And God is glorified by the humble. He's not glorified by palatial residences for church leaders. I'm sorry, he isn't. And so what we want to do is foster an environment of humility and be thankful for those church leaders we have in this country and other countries who express that humility. And before I leave the idea of leaders' humility, I need to mention one aspect of American culture that's probably the most poisonous for souls. And I'm talking about Catholic media, of which I am a part. 
Okay. In the United States, the TV show, when it first came on, I would pretty much appalled, still am in a sense, but the TV show American Idol. And I've come to realize that um, that show has a very truthful title because in America, you can be an average person because really we're all average persons. If you're a man, you put your pants on just the way I put my pants on this morning. Even though I'm on Catholic radio, I'm an average person. You're an average person, man or woman, child. Okay, But in America, you take an average person, put them on TV, and they become an American idol. And I do think, uh, even though I was pretty much repulsed by that show, not to say I'm in love with it now, but I'm saying this is what America does to people on the media. I just did a, a Google search and I came across a conference entitled Meet the Stars of Catholic Radio. Do you realize how destructive that is to the souls of the good folks on Catholic radio, Catholic media, or people are introduced at conferences as a Catholic personality, and that might go over at a conference, but believe me, if you're standing before the judgment throne of Jesus Christ, hello, Jesus, I'm a Catholic personality. I'm afraid you might go to the hot place with a description of yourself like that because that's pride. That isn't Christian. doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. And now we have Catholic personalities and media stars and celebrity priests. Uh-uh. This is toxic, toxic, toxic. I remember Scott Hahn said something to me years ago. There was a big push for a radio network. They raised $60 million. Scott had questions about it because he made the comment, it wasn't born in humility like EWTN with Mother Angelica. And it really has to be born in humility. And if I can kind of bring a little bit over from the national humility, the idea is that we need to continue a life of humility, no matter how uh, successful and blessed an endeavor is by God. Humility is absolutely essential. I'm going to touch briefly on another category, theological humility. I, I, I don't know who's listening to this broadcast, but I doubt a whole lot of theologians are. But uh, for those of, of us who uh, like to study uh, theology and, and delve into it, Sirach chapter 3 has something to say to us. Seek not what is too difficult for you, nor investigate what is beyond your power. Reflect upon what has been assigned to you, for you do not need what is hidden. Do not meddle in what is beyond your task, for matters too great for human understanding have been shown to you. For their hasty judgment has led many astray, and wrong opinion has caused their thoughts to slip. I'll just put this one on me. I am a former radical uh, Calvinist, and people, Catholics really don't understand Calvinism because it's, it's a lot more to it than what's often described. 
but it's very intellectually satisfying because it's, it really seeks to have a, a logical understanding of everything. And one of the famous things with, with Calvinism is the whole question of predestined and predestination and free will. Now, as a Catholic, I believe in predestination. St. Thomas Aquinas certainly believed in predestination. There is predestination in the Bible described. But as a Calvinist, this is what I did. In fact, it was a, a particular research project I engaged in in seminary that Calvinists recognized that God had certain eternal decrees regarding predestination and the fall and everything else, and that there's a certain sequence or order of these eternal decrees of God. Now, just think about it for a minute. If you're in eternity, there's no temporal sequence of anything <laughs> because, you know, the past, the present, and the future is all one. And yet here I was, a, <laughs> a young seminarian, determining how God determined his eternal decrees. And it was interesting. I was on a um, radio show with Marcus Grodi, and Marcus asked me the predestination question because we had been studying theology as Calvinist. And I said, Marcus, I used to have all of this figured out. And I just told the story, I just told you. But I said, now I'm a babe. And I, I just rest. Yes, I believe fully in the predestination of God and as described in Scripture and theology, and also believe in free will. If you want to figure out how they all work together, it's beyond my understanding. And, you know, even with the Blessed Eucharist, this is just my personal spin. I think a lot of attempts, not in seminaries and philosophy classes, I'm just talking about in public, so to speak, in homilies and classes and broadcasts, when you try to overdefine it, not recognizing that this is perhaps the greatest mystery on earth, along with the incarnation. I mean, I certainly believe it. I believe it 100%, but uh, I'm speaking personally. I'm not about to try to over-explain it, recognizing that uh, it's a mystery to be believed and lived and actually made a part of your life. But as far as rationally being able to put this in categories that, you know, dink, 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 uh, I'll let that rest. Okay. And then finally, and this is actually one of my favorite, uh, historical humility. We live in an age where we're, you know, given the marketing all the time, the latest is the greatest. Now, the latest being the greatest might be true for iPhones. You know, Apple seems to come up with, you know, some new gizmo, a better camera or this or that, uh, that makes, you know, their latest and greatest iPhone very desirable. But if you're looking for a current view of the entire world, of history, of understanding Christianity, of understanding who you are as a human person or any subject of investigation. It's not a question of current views and current books versus ancient history because there's a prejudice in the modern world thinking the latest is the greatest when it comes to books and resources and speakers and researchers and scholars. Sirach says in chapter 39, verse 1, 
He who devotes himself to the study of the law of the Most High will seek out the wisdom of all the ancients, and he will be concerned with prophecies. He will preserve the discourse of notable men and penetrate the subtleties of parables. He who devotes himself to the study of the law of God will seek out the wisdom of all the ancients. Do yourself a great favor, and if you have a child where you can direct their education, either by way of supplement for traditional classroom or Better yet, if you're homeschooling, you can just make this uh, a requirement. But C.S. Lewis wrote an essay entitled On the Reading of Old Books, and you can find this all over the internet. Just do a Google search for it. And he wrote this as an introduction to St. Athanasius's work on the Incarnation. And Lewis says it's a strange idea abroad that in every subject the ancient books should be read only by the professionals and that the amateur should content himself with the modern books. And Lewis explains why, no, if you really are an amateur, the modern books haven't been tested by time yet, and you might not have the expertise to test them. So he said, if you're an amateur, by far, read the ancient books. And he says, I do not wish the ordinary reader to read no modern books, but if he must read only the new or the old, I would advise him to read the old, and Lewis included himself as a modern author. I can say to you that one of the main reasons I'm sitting in front of this microphone today as a Catholic is due to a paperback on old writings, some of the oldest writings in the church, the writings of the apostolic fathers, the writings of the church fathers, whose lives overlapped the apostles and were the second generation of Christians. And it was a little penguin paperback entitled Early Christian Writings for $3.95. It now lists for $16, tells you a little something about the value of the dollar. But in any case, that changed my life. And along with that, I went to a conference out west where they said, before you come, you need to bring a copy of the seven ecumenical councils. And these were the seven ecumenical councils in the early church. I didn't realize I was too dumb. It was actually a joke. But for me, it was no joke. This was like the helicopter coming in on a life-saving rescue and lifted me right out of my evangelical Protestant pastorate, really, and saw a perspective of the ancient church by reading these ancient church councils and the ancient church fathers. The one who devotes himself to the study of the law of Most High will seek out the wisdom of the ancients. That's Sirach 39.1. And I'm Steve Wood, your host. You've been listening to episode 351 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to learn more about Catholic family life.